What's up, everybody? This is Esoteric Eddie. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast version of Esoteric Eddie TV. I hope you enjoy this episode. Peace. The Anunnaki theorem is the concept built from many scholars over the centuries which postulates that all mythologies of the major world religions stem from a source, that source being the Sumerian Anunnaki mythos. This documentary is a brief video version of my recent book, The Anunnaki Theorem, now available on Amazon.com. Chapter 1. God and the Creation of Humanity Among the world's earliest religious texts, we have the Pyramid Text. Written in Old Egypt during the 3rd millennium BC, they detail many spells, incantations, and stories of the gods. Allegedly constructed under the last pharaoh of the 5th dynasty, King Unas, they give us some insight into early Egyptian cosmology. They were officially studied by French archaeologist and Egyptologist Gaston Maspero. They consist of about 4,000 lines within several pyramids in Saqqara. The most important aspect of them is their description of the soul's journey into the afterlife. The priest would chant these sacred lines as the pharaoh would be prepared in a ceremonial burial so that his soul could be guided to the field of reeds, also known as the place of imperishable stars. Piecing together the pyramid text with various later Egyptian writings, we get a familiar story. In the beginning, there was a watery darkness of chaos. Out of the primal ether was born the self-created Atum. Atum was an androgynous being which spawned the basic elements such as air and earth, which were imagined as sentient energies. After the elements, the gods were created, then humans. After the humans rebelled and attempted to kill Ra, the gods retaliated, killing many of the humans before leaving earth altogether towards the heavens. The Egyptian creation story is similar to that of the Bibles, which states, And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The similarity of the watery darkness existing before anything is a common theme in ancient cosmologies. Another similarity between the two beliefs is that Atum, like the God of the Bible, could speak life into existence. This is reimagined in the Hindu and Buddhist concepts of the Aum. The Aum chant is a sacred chant representing the creator of the universe. The universe was manifested through the spoken word of the creator of all. Word is vibration. Creation is word accompanied by the power of simultaneous manifestation. The Aum represents the underlying vibration, or hum, that sustains all things. When chanting Aum, one is harmonizing with the creative force of the entire universe. Zoroastrianism is another early religion with some interesting similarities. Its legendary roots go back to the 2nd millennium BC. However, most scholars place its date to about 600 BC. It was started by the mythical prophet Zarathustra, or Zoroaster. He was an Iranian prophet who grew up in the royal courts of Persia's ancient kingdom. In its past time, Persia followed a polytheistic belief system which had various customs, such as the sacrifice of animals. Zarathustra grew up being taught by the priest in his early teens. He quickly gained wisdom and realized he didn't agree with the traditions and beliefs of his people. 
Later, around 30 years old, he had a vision by a river. There he saw the divine emissary, Vohu Maha. Vohu was sent by the creator Ahura Mazda. Zarathustra would later commune with Ahura Mazda and would be enlightened on the truth of reality. He was told of the dualistic nature of good and evil, which emanate through the entities Ahura Mazda and Angra Manyu. Many scholars have concluded that Zoroastrianism influenced Judaism during its post-Babylon exile when the Persian Empire freed them after taking over the area. Zoroastrianism was later instituted by the Sasanian Empire in the 4th century of the Common Era. During this empire, the sacred book of Zoroastrianism, the Avesta, was officially written down. Agutil Duperon of Paris was the first European to publish a translation of the Avesta in 1771. The oldest parts of the Avesta are the Gathas, a section said to be the direct writings and teachings of Zarathustra. The Persians, like many other civilizations from Central Asia, originated from the Indo-Europeans, a group of prehistorical nomads who dispersed and spread out throughout Europe and Asia. They were the progenitors of the English, Spanish, German, and Greek-speaking peoples and their religious texts. The origin of these people is speculated to have begun in Eurasia in the 4th millennium BC. Among the early branch of the Indo-Europeans were the Hittites. They spoke of a storm god as their patron deity. In what is considered the oldest Indo-European text to date, the Anita text, a famous Hittite king spoke of a deity titled Siu Sumin. This roughly translates to our god. Sius, god, is seen as an etymological root for the Indo-European word dios, which also became the Greek Zeus and Latin dios. One of the oldest religious texts also belongs to an offshoot known as the Indo-Iranians. This text, the Rig Veda, written about 1400 BC, influenced Zoroastrianism and Hinduism. Some concepts and names of deities within the Rig Veda are reflected in the Avesta. The Rig Veda holds an ancient creation story known as the Nasadiya Sukta. The Vedas are meant to be chanted with similar sentiments as the Om. Within the story, similar to the Egyptian Atum, the creator of all, Satur is self-created. Satur is born out of a dark watery void similar to the other creation stories. Again, this being creates the elements personified as sentient beings, then humans. Previous to all of these is the Sumerian Enuma Elish. This tale used to be acted out during the Babylonian New Year festival, Akitu. Reading L.W. King's 1902 translation, we find again similar attributes of the creation story. When in the height, heaven was not named, and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name. There was the primal Apsu and the mother of the gods, Tiamat, their waters mingled together. As we can see, the ancients imagined the creation of the universe as beginning with a void or watery etherical darkness of some sort where the first consciousness self-emanated. The Anuma Elish is an interesting story because it reads like a battle between various gods, but when looked at through a more metaphorical way, it could be perceived to be telling us the story of our solar system's creation. The story is about Apsu and Tiamat having six children. Along with Tiamat and Apsu is their little helper, Gaga. 
scholars such as Zechariah Sitchin would say that these deities are the celestial bodies in our solar system, with Apsu being the sun, Tiamat being a mythical planet, Gaga being Mercury, and the rest being the outer planets. In the story, Tiamat wages war against her children with the help of Kingu, or possibly the moon. Eventually, Tiamat is destroyed by the protagonist, Marduk, named after the later patron deity of Babylon. This planet enters the scene as a rogue hero from outer space. Marduk, or Nibiru as some would call it, sets all the planets into their orbits or destinies as he enters and gives them their orders. As he heads for Tiamat, he then, with the help of what are called his Four Winds, proceeds to destroy her, splitting her in half. As is stated in this verse, he split her up like a flat fish into two halves. One half of her he established as a covering for heaven, not to let her waters come forth. Interestingly, as we see here, one half of Tiamat becomes a covering for heaven, a sort of firmament, as is reminiscent in the Bible. Sitchin would say that this covering would be the asteroid belt, which is the remnants of her smashed half, while the other half healed up and became earth. Both in the Enuma Elish and Bible, the firmament, or hammered bracelet, as it is sometimes referred to as, is used to separate the waters, possibly the inner planets, with the outer. Biblical scholar and reverend A. E. Watham wrote about these similarities in his 20th century essay, The Yahweh to Home Myth, stating, After first creating light, Yahweh next proceeds to subdue or bring under control the surging waters of the turbulent abyss. He then divides it into two portions, making of the one the upper and the other the lower ocean. To keep the upper waters in their place, he creates a dome-like support, rakia, correctly rendered in all of our versions, firmament. Wadham postulates that the writers of the Old Testament were aware of the Enuma Elish, which came from their Mesopotamian ancestors, and in a way rewrote it so that their god, Yahweh, was the protagonist of the ancient Tiamat. The Hebrew word used for darkness or void in the original Old Testament was Tehom, which Watham believes is a cognate to the Babylonian Tiamat. There are other obvious renderings of the Sumerian tales in the Bible, such as the Great Flood story. The Bible, in many instances, is a summarized version of much older lengthier texts written from a biased Israelite perspective. The flood story in the Bible, like many others around the world, are renditions of the Sumerian Eridu Genesis story. The best version of this story is the later Akkadian Atrahasis version. As we see in the Bible, the singular God is contemplative on whether or not to destroy humanity in the great flood, deciding to save us through Noah and his family. This story is an obvious copy of the earlier version where it wasn't one god, but two brother gods, Enki and Enlil, that were making this decision. These two brothers belong to the Sumerian pantheon called the Anunnaki. This term is basically translated as the royal offspring of Anu and Ki. Anu was the father of the gods, along with his wife, Ki. Anu means heaven or sky, and Ki means earth. And this is where speculative scholars such as Zechariah Sitchin develop the translation as those who from heaven to earth came, in other words, extraterrestrials. The creation of humanity 
is another story that has precedent in the Sumerian mythology and the few instances throughout the many Sumerian tablets we have in which humans are created. They are made by the mixing of Anunnaki blood and earth clay. It is also repeatedly stated that we were created to be helpers, workers, or servants of the gods, as is seen in a bilingual Sumerian Akkadian text titled The Creation of Humankind. Let us create humankind from Anunnaki blood. Their labor shall be labor for the gods, to maintain the boundary ditch for all time, to set the pickaxe and work basket in their hands, to make the great dwelling of the gods worthy to be their sublime sanctuary for celebrating the gods' festivals as they should. In another version, the god Enki and goddess Ninma create humans through the mixing of blood and clay, which the Bible later reimagined with the story of Adam and Eve. In an essay for City University of New York, Sa'ad D. Abulhab presents that we might find similarities in Islam. In Genesis 1.26, when man is being made, it is said that he is made in God's image and likeness. Abulhab states that the Hebrew term ka damutnu is used for likeness. Dumyatu in Old Arabic and Hebrew can mean image. However, the root Arabic words damu and dama mean blood. Therefore, Adam, in the Islamic sense, was created through blood. Zechariah Sitchin saw all this talk about the mixing of blood as being a simplified explanation of genetic engineering. Chapter 2. Sumerian Discovery Within the 150 years of the various cuneiform scripts being found, only about 10% have been deciphered. There are over tens of thousands held in different collections around the world. It is estimated that about half a million, if not around one million, have been found. They were initially found in the 1800s by adventurous scholars such as J.S. Buckingham and Sir Henry Layard. In the early 1800s, the Ottoman provinces of the modern-day Near East, Syria, Palestine, and Iraq, became more open to foreign travelers. J.S. Buckingham claimed to be the first person in over a century to write about his journey there in 1827. Buckingham respectfully wore Arab garb to mix in with the locals to go about his excavating and studying without conflict. After him, other scholars and rich connoisseurs moved into the area, many looking to make amazing and historical finds. The Sumerian writing style progressed from basic pictographs to full-fledged writing styles in cuneiform over centuries. Among the first big finds in the Middle East was the city of Nineveh and its library with these amazing writings. Nineveh is mentioned in the Bible. After its finding, much of the history in the Bible was starting to be corroborated. However, scholars were unaware then that it would be so because the Bible's authors were writing about history passed down to them from their ancestral predecessors, the Sumerians. Prior to Sumerian being deciphered, we had to break the code of its sister languages, like Babylonian. The key that led to the decipherment of Sumerian was the Behistun inscription. It was a military exploit made by King Darius in eastern Iran. It was written in Old Persian, Babylonian, and Elamite, all relatives of the ancient Sumerian text and language. From these old world languages, we were able to patiently trace back signs, syllables, and whole words to Sumerian. Also important to the decipherment was the fact that Sumer and Akkad, being sister empires, had their students learn each language and writing system. 
We have since found dictionaries of Akkadian and Sumerian words. Because Akkad's writing and culture was similar to the later Babylon, once we understood Babylonian writing, jumping to Akkad, we were able to eventually decipher Sumerian. George Friedrich Grotenfend, a German epigraphist and philologist, in 1802 was the first to decipher the Old Persian portion, giving a starting advantage to the later Assyriologists. After him, Henry Rawlinson, in the mid-19th century, took paper prints of the text back to England. Reverend Edward Hinks, a part of the initial translators of cuneiform, was later employed by the British Museum to work on deciphering texts. He was brilliant and able to decipher at a genius level. His papers were left at the museum, from which later eager Assyriologist Sir Henry Rawlinson glanced over and used to his advantage to publish his works off of. According to modern master of Assyriology, Irving Finkel, who is also assistant keeper of ancient Mesopotamian script, languages, and cultures in the Department of the Middle East in the British Museum, remembers Rawlinson as a sort of scammer who plagiarized his career from the work of Hinks. It was Hinks who realized that there were other texts in the southern Babylon area that were written in cuneiform that did not belong to the Semitic language of Assyria or Babylon. Cuneiform is a script, not a language. When they came across the other tablets that weren't easily translatable, it was concluded that they belonged to a different language and people altogether. French Assyriologist Jules Opert suggested calling these people the Sumerians, based on inscriptions that read, King of Sumer and Akkad. Samuel Noah Kramer, famed 20th century Assyriologist, credited Hinks, Rawlinson, and Opert as the holy triad of cuneiform decipherment. Chapter 3 the Sumerians. The Sumerian culture sprung up around 3500 BC. They called themselves the Sagiga, the black-headed people. They were called the Sumerians by the Akkadians, meaning land or people of the kings. Sumer was a fascinating place, pioneering so many firsts for the civilizations that would follow. However, they were never a unified kingdom. They were locally democratic, electing their own officials per city. Each city had a patron deity that was a symbolic overseer of the city. Underneath the god, there would be the En, priest, accompanied with the Ensi, governor, and the Lugal, or the sort of military or kingly ruler. Modern-day Sumer is where Iraq is today. During Sumer's cultural height, it had about 12 important city-states. Its history is chaotic, with a brigade of battles for supremacy between each city. One ruler during the 25th century BC, Lugal Anmundu, is quoted as saying in an inscription dating from the 17th century, For Nintu, the mother of the nation, queen for the temple, great spouse of Enlil, his beloved lady, I, Lugal Anmundu, the strong man, who provides for Nippur, king of Adab, and king of the four world quarters, secured tribute upon the people of all the lands. It was common for the kings or rulers of each city to justify their escapades by the orders of the gods, the Anunnaki. Like gang wars or capture the flag, each city would make moves against another, pushing the central power of Sumer from one city to another over the thousands of years of its history. Sumer's last old dynastic ruler from the 3rd millennium BC, Lugalzagesi, took over and burned and looted the rival cities. In an existent text, we find him boasting that he ruled from the lower sea, Persian Gulf, to the upper sea, 
Mediterranean. His rule wouldn't last long as outside nomad tribes were gaining strength. It wasn't long before the Akkadians, led by Sargon of Akkad, invaded and took Sumer by storm. Sargon's life is still a mystery. We don't know his actual name. He titled himself Sargon, meaning legitimate ruler. In some apparently autobiographical text, he claims that his mother was a priestess of the cult of Inanna and that she became pregnant through what could be assumed an immaculate conception. He claims he didn't know his father and that after his mother became pregnant, because she was a priestess, she had to hide her pregnancy. Once Sargon was born, he was put into a basket and floated down a river where he was found by Aki, a gardener, who took him in. Sargon grew strong and confident, rallying his people behind a semi-divine origins but yet humble and grassroots background. He took advantage of the dysfunctional Sumer and took its center of power. He ruled for 50 years before his death. While he ruled, he instituted his daughter, Enheduanna, as the high priestess of Inanna at the temple of Ur. In usual ancient Mesopotamian fashion, the Akkadians and Sumerians were later ravaged by the nomadic and barbaric Gudians. This event is remembered in a Babylonian account known as the Curse of Agade. In it, we find the terrible event explained as follows. Enlil brought out of the mountains those who do not resemble other people, who are not reckoned as part of the land, the Gudians, an unbridled people with human intelligence, but canine instincts and monkeys' features. Like small birds, they swooped on the ground in great flocks. Because of Enlil, they stretched their arms out across the plain, like a net for animals. Nothing escaped their clutches. No one left their grasp. There was yet again another chaotic period. The Sumerian people patiently waited through all of these eras of chaos, hoping to see another Sumerian revival. There were short-lived revivals during its Neo-Sumerian period. However, nature was unkind to them as well. Around the onset of the Gudian invasion, a severe drought ensued, which was to last a few hundred years. Matt Confers, a geologist at the Bird Polar Research Center, presented some geological evidence for what might have been this two to three hundred year drought. The Curse of Agade text also reflects this occurrence, stating that the large arable tracts yielded no grain, the inundated fields yielded no fish, the irrigated orchards yielded no syrup or wine, the thick clouds did not rain. Eventually, the Sumerian people were overtaken by the Babylonians, and their culture, language, and stories declined, fading into obscurity. As is remorsefully remembered in their text known as the Lamentation of Ur. On its boulevards, where festivals had been held, heads lay scattered. In all its streets, where walks had been taken, corpses were piled. In its places, where the dances of the land had taken place, people were stacked in heaps. They made the blood of the land flow down like copper or tin. Its corpses, like fat left in the sun, melted away of themselves. What the Sumerians definitely passed down was the love and respect for the Anunnaki. Lugalzegesi, the last ruler before the Akkadian overthrow, boasted in a text that he was Lugalzegesi, king of Uruk, king of the nation, incantation priest of An, looked upon truly by An as the king of all the lands, the chief ruler of Enlil, given wisdom by Enki, chief steward of the gods. The Anunnaki were a family of gods written about by the Sumerians and their later sister cultures like that of the Akkadian and Babylonian. They were headed by An 
and his two sons, Enki and Enlil. Aside from the holy trio, there were many children and grandchildren of the top-ranking Anunnaki. They were admired and venerated by our most ancient of ancestors as the progenitors of civilization and humans. Chapter 4. The Anunnaki The Bible describes the creation of mankind in Genesis 1.26. Interestingly, in the English version it reads, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. As we can see, there is a plural context here for good reason. Many theologians and scholars have been stumped at this fact and have tried to explain it away with some religious philosophy. The reason there is plural context there is simple. The Hebrew word used in the original text wasn't God, but Elohim. Elohim is a plural word meaning the powerful ones or gods. Zechariah Sitchin, made famous by writing about the Anunnaki and their exploits starting with his first book in the 70s, realized this fact and expanded on it. He is quoted as saying that he realized this as a young child and later was further influenced by a famous Russian rabbi who wrote about this theory. Malbim, Russian-born rabbi and scholar of Hebrew who lived from 1809 to 1879, is remembered in Jewish academia as a prolific philosopher and writer on Jewish texts. It was he who Sitchin was influenced from. Malbim is quoted as saying of the Elohim that, They are the ones that it said they fell from heaven. It is known that in all the ancient stories of the nations, they told that in the early days of the king over the kingdom, Benai Elohim, came down from the heavens to the earth and ruled over it and married women from the daughters of Adam, and to them were born strong, revered, perfect princes. Similar stories are found with the first kings of Egypt and Greece, which began from gods and half-gods that walked on high mountains, and the stories say that they were wonderful and strong. Malbim was more correct than he could have known. Unfortunately for him, we didn't discover the Sumerian tablets until about the last half of his life, let alone fully understand their implications until after his death. The Elohim were obviously the Anunnaki, reimagined by our Israelite ancestors. The Anunnaki are the earliest of gods mentioned by our human family. Considered one of the oldest texts available to us, the Kesh Temple Hymn, written around 2600 BC, introduces us to the Anunnaki. An intriguing text, it details the constructive exploits of these beings mentioning that they are constructing some type of buildings meant for ceremonies and praise, as is seen here. The house whose lords are the Anuna gods, whose priests are the sacrificers of end priests, holds the lead rope dangling. The Atu priest holds the staff, brings the waters, and takes his seat in the holy place. The Enkum priests bow down. The Pakek priests beat the drumskins. They recite powerfully powerfully. The bull's horn is made to growl. The drumsticks are made to thud. The singer cries out to the Allah drum. The grand sweet tiggy is played for him. The house is built. Its nobility is good. The house is built. Its nobility is good. Its lady has taken a seat. Its lady has taken her seat. Will anyone else bring forth something as great as this house? The gods seemingly were preoccupied with religious matters and constructing buildings and society, as is also attested in an old text known as Enki and the World Order. In this text, we see Enki and the other gods building Sumer from the ground up 
tending the land and domesticating the animals. In it, we also see the love the gods had for early Sumer, as is stated here. Sumer, great mountain, land of heaven and earth, trailing glory, bestowing powers on the people from sunrise to sunset. Your powers are superior powers, untouchable, and your heart is complex and inscrutable. Like heaven itself, your good creative force, in which gods too can be born, is beyond reach. The Anuna, the great gods, have taken up dwellings in your midst and consumed their food in your Giguna shrines. The Anunnaki were the predecessors of all the other gods, and the worship of them the source of all other religions. Chapter 5 Evidence of the Anunnaki the influence of the Anunnaki has prevailed throughout history in many cases. When the Jews were held captive by the Babylonians during the 6th century BC, they gathered together and instituted monotheism with the worship of Yahweh. The Jews were eventually freed after the Persian king Cyrus took over the kingdom and let them go. The Bible details this account and names Cyrus as the anointed of Yahweh, claiming he was inspired by their God to do so. This is a case of historical manipulation. The Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is a biased historical account viewed through the perception of the Jews. In 1879, we found an older account of this event written in Akkadian cuneiform. Known as the Cyrus Cylinder, it tells a different story. As we see in the text, Cyrus was inspired by his personal god, more specifically, the patron god Marduk, as seen in this quote. Marduk the exalted, the Lord of gods, turned towards all the habitations that were abandoned, and he searched everywhere, and then took a righteous king, his favorite, by the hand. He called out his name, Cyrus, king of Babylon, king of Sumer, and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world. Marduk belonged to the olden pantheon of the Sumerian gods. Marduk was the son of Enki, even up to the point of the institution of monotheism under the Jews, the Anunnaki were still being worshipped. Thousands of years later, the impact of the ancient Mesopotamian culture would still linger. In a video presented by Arabian channel Memory TV in 2016, titled Iraqi Transport Minister Kazem Finjan, 5,000-year-old Sumerian airport served for space travel, we see the transport minister state that Perhaps many of the people of the Dakar government do not know that the first airport to be built on planet Earth 5,000 years ago, before the Christian era, was built here, in Dakar. If you do not believe me, read the book of the great historian Zechariah Sitchin. Of course, Finjan, as he claimed, was influenced by the works of Zechariah Sitchin, the author who pioneered the Anunnaki theory. Sitchin claimed that the Anunnaki were real people from another planet who came here hundreds of thousands of years ago and upstarted civilization by genetically engineering us out of our hominid ancestors. Sitchin believed that these beings had advanced technology and chose to land in the Middle East due to its open plateau that made it perfect for aircraft to take off and land from, as Finjan also declared. Saddam Hussein was also influenced by his Mesopotamian ancestors of Babylon. In a propaganda piece issued from the Iraqi government during his early rule titled From Nebuchadnezzar to Saddam Hussein, Babylon Rises Again, we see the fervor as stated. Saddam Hussein emerges from Mesopotamia as Hammurabi and Nebuchadnezzar had emerged. Saddam Hussein, the grandson of the Babylonians, 
the son of this great land, is leaving his fingerprints everywhere. During the many decades of the wars in Iraq, about 17,000 artifacts were looted. The Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. was sued in 2017 for having in its possession a looted tablet. The 3,500-year-old tablet, the Gilgamesh Dream Tablet, was bought by the museum for $1.6 million. They were eventually sued by the Justice Department for $3 million. As of now, out of the hundreds of thousands of tablets discovered since the 1800s, only about 10% have been publicly translated, if that. Although there is no real evidence of the Anunnaki still being around, their influence is definitely still felt through the vague religious institutions that were based on their worship long ago. Over the course of religious history, the evidence of their worship or presence has been deliberately erased and simply forgotten. Within the New Testament, we find many intriguing messages that could point to a deeper history. In 1 Peter 3.18-20, we find a strange account of Christ's spirit going to a prison and preaching to some disobedient spirits from Noah's time. Christianity.com claims that this is the most cited Bible passage for the account of Jesus descending to hell before his resurrection is found in 1 Peter 3.18-20. In a thesis submitted in 2002 to Liberty University for a degree in Master of Arts by Jason M. Hauf titled Interpretation of 1 Peter 3.18-22, we find that the exegesis of 1 Peter 3.18-22 is a seemingly endless labyrinth of closely knit problems that has puzzled and motivated many. All who have attempted to unravel its secrets have soon realized that it is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret. The conundrum of this passage has been pondered on by many scholars throughout the centuries. The famous church reformer Martin Luther said of the verses as follows, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. The first line mentions that Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Verse 19 is where the confusion begins, as it states, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. The questions most have with the verses are, who are the spirits in prison? Where is the prison located? What did Christ actually proclaim? And when did this preaching take place? In the original Greek, the opening of verse 19, which is sometimes translated as by which or in which, initially read enokai, which is really close to enoch's enoch in Greek. If we add a Greek chai to enkai, in which also transforms into Enochai and Enoch. The context could be that Christ turned into a spirit after his death, and it was in this form by which also Enoch was able to go and preach to the imprisoned spirits. The emendation or replacement of words was noticed as far back as the 1700s. William Boyer was the first scholar to translate the original Greek manuscript words from 1 Peter, from Christ to Enoch, he must have had a deep understanding of scripture and translation because the book of Enoch was not yet translated into English then. It was barely being found in Ethiopia around that time by explorer James Bruce. A few 20th century scholars would follow Boyer's thinking. J.R. Harris, biblical scholar, in his 1891 essay for Expositor, a further note on the use of Enoch in 1 Peter, wrote, 
These imprisoned spirits are the angels who sinned with mortal woman, for whose offense and its punishment the Book of Enoch is our prime authority. The very large language used in Enoch for their place of punishment, this place is the prison of angels, is in close correspondence with the Petrine expression. Perhaps after all the difficulty really arises from the fact that the subject of the word, Enoch, has dropped out of the text, and that the real person who made proclamation to the spirits in prison is not Christ, but Enoch himself. The reason Enoch would fit into this passage is because the story of Enoch, as told in the apocryphal book of Enoch, is all about him being visited by the archangels, being shown secrets of life, death, and God, and being given the responsibility of visiting the fallen angels in their prison to read them the sentence of their crimes. The fallen angels and Enoch are briefly mentioned in Genesis 6. In the Bible, we are told that the sons of God took the daughters of men and bore children unto them. Enoch, who was alive during this time in the Bible, is simply taken up with God and we hear no more about him. The book of Enoch is the missing history in which the Bible alluded to with its brief mention of the fallen angels and Enoch. Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah, the survivor of the great flood. In the book of Enoch, the prophet is warned of the flood and told to pass down knowledge to his descendants, thus his sons and grandson Noah. The great flood was to be issued as a means to wipe out the abomination of the mixing of the angels and mankind. Out of this sexual interaction were born what the Bible calls the Nephilim, sometimes translated as giants. As Sitchin points out in his work, Nephilim can also mean those who fell or descended. This is suitable for in the book of Enoch, the rebel angels descended upon Mount Hermon, where they congregated and made a pact to see out their plans of kidnapping and mating with human women in unison. The book of Enoch is actually a compilation of manuscripts from different time periods and places. The manuscripts span from the 2nd century BC up to the 5th century CE and possibly later. There are three books of Enoch titled One Enoch, Two Enoch, and Three Enoch. The first, of course, contains the oldest fragments going back to the 1st and 2nd centuries BC. The various fragments are written in different languages, including that of Hebrew, Old Slavonic, and Ethiopic Gaiz. Originally held as a respective piece of canon, the Book of Enoch later fell out of favor with the church for the very reason that it mentioned the angels as being corporeal and being able to mate with human. It wasn't always regarded as hypocrisy. In the second century, Justin the Martyr, in his work titled Second Apology, he declares that the fallen angels subsequently subjugated the human race to themselves, and among men they engendered murders, wars, adulteries, all sorts of dissipation, and every species of sin. Athenagoras, second century church father, in his plea for the Christians, says, These fallen angels fell into impure love of virgins and were subjugated by the flesh. Of these lovers of virgins, therefore, were begotten those who are called giants. Important third century theologian Lactantius said of the matter that, God, in his foresight, sent angels for the protection and improvement of the human race. However, while the angels lived among men, that most deceitful ruler of earth, by his very association, gradually enticed them to vices and polluted them through sexual relations with women. The church would later become upset at the Book of Enoch and its implications with the fact that angels might have been physical beings. Jerome, the author of the Latin Vulgate, the version of the Bible that the Roman church would adopt, wrote about the book of Enoch, saying, This book is quite explicit 
and is classified as apocryphal. The ancient exegetes have at various times referred to it, but we are citing it not as authoritative, but merely to bring it to your attention. Do you detect the source of the teachings of Manichaeus the ignorant? Jerome correlated the book with a well-known heretic of his time, Manny, stating that Manny's strange and wild ideas stemmed from the book of Enoch. Augustine, another important early church father, wrote in his famous City of God that he could by no means believe that God's holy angels could at that time have so fallen. Let us omit then the fables of those scriptures which are called apocryphal. Slowly, the church did away with the book of Enoch and the idea of the physical fallen angels altogether. The memory of the fallen angels disappeared as the imagery of angels transformed from physical human-like beings to etherical spirit bodies distant from us. These fallen angels could only belong to the group of beings that our ancient Mesopotamian ancestors knew as Anunnaki. There may be other remnants of their existence. The Great Pyramid of Giza stands as a testament to time. It is a symbol of the mythical past with the present. The earliest Western source about its construction came from Herodotus and his histories. In it, he wrote that it took 100,000 slaves about 20 years to build the largest pyramid in Giza. Mainstream scholars would say that it was built under the pharaoh Khufu in the mid-3rd millennium BC. However, there are no concluding pieces of evidence to prove this. The strongest piece of evidence they have is the Weiss cartouche. Howard Weiss was an eager scholar of the mid-19th century who wanted to gain access to the Giza Plateau. After being rejected on certain occasions, he eventually took matters into his own hands. He and his accomplice had a hunch that they would find something hidden in the uppermost space of the relief chambers in the heart of the pyramid. After spending months arrogantly blasting through the stone slabs, Vice conveniently found a royal cartouche, the name of King Khufu, inscribed in sketchy red paint. Some scholars, such as Sitchin, deem this to be an obvious forgery, but mainstream scholars disagree. The leading Egyptologist at that time, Carl Richard Lepsius, admitted that the inscriptions were traced with a red brush in a cursive manner, so much so that they resemble hieratic signs meaning that the style of writing didn't match the style during the reign of King Khufu. Another interesting piece of evidence sometimes used to corroborate the pyramid's construction during Khufu's reign is Merer's Logbook. The piece of papyri was found by French Egyptologist Pierre Tallet in 2013. It is a financial account of different transactions made by the foreman Merer as he traveled Egypt to gather supplies for various construction projects. He mentioned a visit to a city that was famous for its limestone quarry. The Great Pyramid used to be completely encased in a white limestone polish. It reflected light and shined so bright that it could be seen from space as a glittering star. Merer does mention that he brings some of the limestone to the Giza Plateau, to the Akit Khufu, the Pyramid of Khufu. However, this isn't evidence that the pyramid was being built then. The stones could have been for anything, even some restorations. Pierre Tallet, the founder of the logbook, said that he didn't want to be involved in any polemics on the building of the pyramids at Giza. It's not my job. Of course, it's interesting to have this kind of information. It will deserve a lot of study. The last piece of evidence sometimes used is the Inventory Stella. Discovered by Auguste Mariette in 1858, written by an unknown scribe in the 7th century BC, it speaks of Khufu building an altar, two pyramids, and restoring the Sphinx. 
It's a strange text because, according to mainstream scholars, the Sphinx was constructed after King Khufu. The text clearly states that it was already in existence. The text seemingly mentions Khufu building two pyramids, however, French Egyptologist Christiane Zivicoche fixed the translation as Khufu rebuilding or restoring the pyramids. With all of this in mind, we can't confidently conclude that the pyramids were built by the Egyptians or anyone in our history. They could possibly be remnants of a prehistorical civilization like that of the mythical Anunnaki. Pyramid was built in the 20 year span that we are told it was built in, then one block would have to be laid every 5 minutes, every hour, for 24 hours a day, for 20 years or so, in order to logistically achieve the building of the pyramid. Interestingly, if you take the height of the pyramid to be a radius of a circle, that circle would perfectly encompass the base of the pyramid, thus squaring the circle. Squaring the circle is an esoteric geometry term which is deemed to be impossible. Many philosophers over time have spoken on this issue. To square the circle means to conjoin heaven and earth as above, so below. Chapter 6 Monotheism The erasure of the Anunnaki occurred with the institution of monotheism. Monotheism was made strong through the three major Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They are called the Abrahamic faiths because the start of the worship of God seemingly began with Abraham. Abraham is seen as the first Jew in the Torah. In Christianity, Abraham is regarded more so as the spiritual ancestor of the faith in which a tradition of faith begun, as Paul relates, in Romans 4-5, saying, Abraham is the father of all that believe. In Islam, Abraham is highly respected, where in the Surah 365 it is stated, The people who are worthiest of Abraham are those who followed him, together with this prophet and the believers. Abraham was born in ancient Mesopotamia, specifically, as the Bible puts it, in Ur-Kasdim, or Ur of the Chaldees. Chaldees, or Chaldea, is general for Mesopotamia. Sumer had an important capital named Ur, and because of this, many have concluded that Abraham was born a Sumerian. However, others think that the Ur-Kasdim is a more general term, meaning Babylon. In the Bible, Abraham is told by God to leave his homeland and start the journey towards the promised land that his descendants would inherit. Abraham and his ancestors were Mesopotamians, a part of the olden culture that were aware of the Anunnaki. This is corroborated in Joshua. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. The other gods, of course, can be none other than the famous Anunnaki of old. Some scholars place Abraham as a contemporary of the Babylonian king Hammurabi, roughly 1700 BC. If this is so, then the other gods are definitely none other than the Anunnaki. Hammurabi's famous law code that is taught in schools across the world opens up with a praise towards the Anunnaki, as is stated here. When Anu, the sublime, king of the Anunnaki, called by name me, Hammurabi, the exalted prince who feared God to bring about the rule of righteousness in the land. The God of the Bible was a jealous God, as is shown in Exodus 20. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I am a jealous God. He must have been aware of these other deities. Judaism wasn't always monotheistic. 
in its pre-exilic period before the Babylonian exile. It went through a muddled period of reverting back to its old Mesopotamian ways. This is reflected in Jeremiah 11, as is seen here. There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their ancestors, who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. The origins of the Israelites, early Jews, were born out of the world of Canaan, as is told in Isaiah 19:18. Hebrew, the language of Canaan. One of the earliest mentions of Yahweh outside of the Bible occurs in the Moabite stone, also known as the Mesha Stella. It was discovered in 1868 in Jordan, written in the 9th century BC by King Mesha of Moab, modern-day Jordan. And from there, I took Yahweh's vessels and I presented them before Kemosh's face. There is an older mention of Yahweh which links his worship to an obscure group known as the Shasu. The inscription was found in a temple built by Amenhotep III. It's a military exploit that boasts the capture and subjugation of the Shasu of Yahweh. The Shasu were a nomadic tribe from the Sinai area. The Sinai area is exactly where the name Yahweh is first revealed in the Bible. God revealed his name, Yahweh, to Moses in the Sinai desert. In Exodus 6-2, when Yahweh is conversing and revealing wisdom to Moses, it is stated, And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. There is also an 8th century BC inscription from the Sinai area declaring, I bless you by Yahweh of Taman and by Asherata. May he bless and keep you, and may he be with my Lord forever. In this inscription, we see Yahweh mentioned alongside a long-forgotten goddess of ancient Canaan. In the previous quote, God mentions that he appeared to Abraham as El Shaddai. El, and specifically El Shaddai, are terms that go far back into Mesopotamian culture before Judaism. The phonetic usage of the word El, God, goes back to at least Akkadian times with the form Il. It is also pronounced throughout the Old World as Ilu, Ilum, and Ilah. It is also the possible Arabian root of Allah. It wasn't until the post-exilic period that Judaism was institutionalized as monotheistic with the Torah. As stated earlier, it was King Cyrus who freed the Jews after overtaking the Babylonian kingdom. In the Bible, we see that the later king, Artaxerxes, sent the prophet Ezra to give his people the new law to control and organize them. The letter reads, To Ezra, the priest, who has studied very well the law of the God of heaven, I hope that you are well. I have given this command. You have the law of your God that he has given to you. Go and see if your people in Judah and Jerusalem are obeying this law. Ezra, your God has helped you to be wise, so you must choose judges and officers who know the laws of your God. Then they will decide things for all the people who live in the region on the west side of the Euphrates River. If the people do not know the laws of your God, you must teach them. Everyone must obey the laws of your God and also the laws of the king. If they do not obey, they deserve the right punishment. With the new Persian kingdom being religiously tolerant, it had a need to control its vast kingdom with various cultures and beliefs. In a clever ploy for compliance, the Persian kingdom allowed the elites or elders of each area to come up with local laws to govern its people, while at the same time having correspondences and loyalties to the new kingdom. 
Through this, Judaism and monotheism were born to quell the chaotic, disarrayed, and unorganized people of Judah and Israel. Christianity would later follow the same blueprint as the Kingdom of Greece and the later Romans had to cope with the ancient pagan belief systems and the encroaching popularization of Christianity. Eventually, Rome instituted Christianity as the state religion and conformed the country into one rule, one God. The Anunnaki were then forgotten and demonized. The once powerful, merciful, and beloved progenitors of our old world ancestors faded into obscurity. Final Chapter Conclusion The Sumerian culture, although it may be the oldest civilization known to us, is not the oldest remnant of human history. There are various sites and monuments around the world that are dated as thousands of years older than the Sumerian culture and writing. It seems as if there is a piece of history lost to us. In the Enki and the World Order text, we see the Anunnaki constructing society, tending the land, domesticating the animals, and structuring themselves into an organization. Enki is seen as the leader, employing the other gods and assigning them their duties, as is seen in this quote. He organized plows, yokes, and teams. The great prince Enki bestowed the horned oxen that follow. He opened up the holy furrows and made the barley grow on the cultivated fields. Enki is also accredited as constructing the calendar so that they could keep track of time, counting the days and putting the months in their houses so as to complete the years and to submit the completed years to the assembly for a decision, taking decisions to regularize the days. Father Enki, you are the king of the assembled people. It almost seems as if these people were restarting civilization, reorganizing the infrastructure. As the many tales attest, there were cataclysms in our ancient past, such as the Great Flood. Many have tied this event with the Atlantean theory, claiming that there was a time when the gods existed in an advanced civilization which was later destroyed due to natural disasters. These people, the Anuna, were not mentioned as being magical beings of creation. They were physical, hard-working people. Even more strange, in the text, we find that they weren't alone, as is shown in this passage. Enki presented animals to those who have no city, to those who have no houses, to the Martu nomads. The Anuna, as they were building their society and setting up the land, were aware of other people who were less fortunate than them or maybe disenfranchised due to the cataclysm and had no real means or knowledge on how to restart their civilization. The Anunnaki were survivors of a forgotten cataclysm or drastic change that might have killed off most of the inhabitants of the known world. These people, the Anunnaki, reinstated civilization and wrote themselves in the history of humanity as the gods.